Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode with Jazz Groom. We were talking about behavior science at scale in the first episode. Now we are going to make it a little broader. You know, just one of the topics that are, have been really, really hot today. And for the listeners that are unaware, we recently did an episode about the war on truth around the Ukraine versus Russia. I really recommend listening to that. This is regarding fake news and fighting fake news, right? This is not only hot for, you know, the, the last, I don't know, two years, But now it's more on the news with Russia against Ukraine. But it's also an epic trend from the study that we got from EY that is going to be a war of the future as well due to all those advancements in synthetic media. It's going to get even harder for people to realize if even a video, an audio, it's fake or not and other technologies, right? So could we be applying behavior science techniques on the fight for truth. What's your thought on that? I don't know whether applying behavioral science you know, techniques, you know, that one of the, the beauties of behavioral science is some of the insights are incredibly simple. So I think authority bias, you know, is we know that we're more likely to be compliant with people that have got some form of credential. So, yes, yeah, so, so, you know, I'm a, a firm believer in you know, independent press, freedom of speech, you know, it's kind of behavioral science quite libertarian. So, so you know, I think that that's definitely the case. And um, independence is really, really important and somehow funding that sort of independence. I think what's come under scrutiny for me is the funding mechanisms of some of those authorities, you know, so what's driving the agendas of, of, some, of some of that scrutiny. So, you know, um, I don't think it's as simple as left wing versus right wing. I, I don't think that's the case. But, but I do think, you know, that going to trusted sources of information and constantly doing that and holding those institutions up to the highest level of integrity is really, really important. And, you know, we're very, very fortunate in the UK, obviously, to have the BBC, which is, you know, uh, a, a mandatory publicly funded organisation. It does help. And there is, you know, lots of people that try to, to, to essentially say that some of the, the BBC are putting out mistruths and some of the way the organisation hasn't behaved hasn't been the, the highest level of integrity on some issues. But I do think, you know, that's a very, very simple way is not to be influenced by, by peers, but from people in positions of authority that have got mechanisms of funding to, that help the bias, I think. So, yeah, I think the, the, the web's, of either, you know, peer-to-peer conspiracies or more privately funded um, sort of mechanisms to distort truth. And, you know, highly, highly sophisticated, you know, it's not just about the weight of messaging, it's about the, the, the actual content and then the context it's delivered in. So, you know, I think one of the things that I spent quite a bit of time in my early career about was, yeah, channel, context um, and content. You know, what are you saying? What channel is it being distributed in? And what's the context in which the message is being received? I think... You know, if you have that in your head and when you're trying to make some good good judgments, then I think that's that's definitely the case. You know, that's why, you know, I think during the war in, in Ukraine, it's about maintaining some of those open channels of truth. But it is difficult and people can distort that. And um, it's just a case of 
trying to educate people to say, you know, you may well see these things at certain places, but go to more independent sort of organizations that have higher levels of scrutiny on, on facts. You know, facts, facts can be framed differently. We know that. And um, so trying to get to that, that point of neutrality, I think, is pretty critical. So, you know, it might not be mind-blowing, <laughs> um, but we often don't do it. Yeah, it's great points, and you know, and that's when we were talking. That's exactly what what I was thinking. So I think education should play a key role in there, and people start questioning more as well, right? If it doesn't sound right, let's let's check other sources, and people just don't do it. They just forward immediately. So, yeah, one of the consequences I think of fake news and Trump. I think I was asked a similar sort sort of question, but when people were saying fake news is it a good thing, I wasn't trying to be contrary, but I did say. I'm happy to say, um, I think it's a good thing in some ways um, because it does get people to look at the source, you know, and is it a trusted source and, and the source that consistently we can believe in. So I think, yeah, for me, it's kind of have a backup and be habitual about that that backup. You could say, is it is it a good thing that we have to do that? But, but yeah, but I think that that is today's world, isn't it? You know, we've got a a you know, huge, huge amount of data and, and information coming in from lots of different sources. So reconcile it habitually versus a source that you trust. And, you know, the psychology of trust is pretty, ama is pretty amazing. So um, I think Dan has done some great work on, on that area. Trust is one of those sort of key, key sort of dimensions, I think, of behavior that um, we're not actually introspective to, but um, is incredibly valuable. So, you know, let's cover bias. There's this discussion regarding bias in which critics state that those initiatives like unconscious bias training could actually end up increasing bias. They could be backslashing. So what's your thought on that? Some companies, I believe like Google, they require all the employees to go through this unconscious bias training. And, you know, like in any controversial topic, there are critics that are going to be against that. So what's your thought? If, is it something that's making bias conscience could be actually backlashing from, from the goal of unbiasing? And is there a such thing as an unbiased environment? Because that's kind of sort of a human nature, right? Yeah, so so winding back a few years, um, so before I was at Cowrie, I was at Ogilvy. The implicit association test originated out of Harvard. The book Blind, The Blind Spot was kind of the consolidation of that. And when it kind of broke, You know, I, I viewed it as this is kind of interesting psychometric research that is starting to help us understand that there might be some stronger associations and, and some disassociations in the brain utilizing a really, really simple technique. And I, I don't, I truly believe, I don't think that the, essentially the originators sort of thought that this was essentially like a, a race, racist test or a sexist test. You know, essentially it was experimental and it seemed to have some interesting findings. I think what happened was people took advantage of the situation and then started to essentially make money from it, um, which is we know how to test where your subconscious biases lie. And that's called training. As a behavioral sort of scientist, my view would be, and Kahneman has been asked this many times, is like being aware of your biases doesn't, you know, if they're however hardwired, however they're calibrated, it doesn't fix them. You know, you don't go, oh my God, you know, I'm really susceptible to being heavily optimistic. Now I know that I'm going to be more 
level-headed and, and, and less optimistic and more neutral. Like it just doesn't doesn't work that way. So so for me, subconscious bias training essentially isn't is not training. It's just you know awareness that there is something in our subconsciousness that can sometimes affect our decisions. You know and um, potentially you know and that's as far as I would go. So. At the time when when we were considering doing some work at Ogilvy about it, you know, for me it was more about how can you design an environment and an experience such that it tries to to de-bias the situation, you know. So I think there's been some really real progress in terms of candidate, you know, either recruitment um, about utilising the right types of words in recruitment ads to attract more women, and um, which I think has been well evidenced, and then also recruitment from different sort of backgrounds. The name of someone or the, the school or the area that people went to isn't so important. So, so for me, I feel incredibly, incredibly disappointed that all of those businesses that have made money out of subconscious bias training is, have essentially created quite an awful situation where people are now saying subconscious bias training doesn't work. Well, it was never going to work because essentially we were just raising awareness of biases in people's brains. And I've been asked, you know, are we interested in going into subconscious bias kind of intervention sort of space? And it's a tricky area because it comes now with quite a lot of sort of halo, negative halo effect, I think. So my view on subconscious bias is, do I think that it's interesting experimental research? Yes. Do I think it's part of the understanding about how we might come to better questions that deliver better answers? I think so. Is it the only thing? No. Is there more work to be done? Yes. I do think that some of our biases are hardwired, some of them more culturally sort of formed through how we've been brought up from our environment. But it doesn't mean that, that you know, you're sexist or, or racist or heightist. As you know, I'm five foot five, so I have a particular problem with people telling me that I'm small and short. Um, I don't have much of a problem, actually. And um, it's in terms of like the world the world being biased and can you de-bias it like nature is biased so you know it's, there's lots of things in our world that have been designed that way to allow us to survive and thrive so of course you know has it been knowingly been designed in that way i think is a different question so i do believe there's no such thing as neutral choice architecture so you know, the way that we've designed our world it is designed in a certain way and it got it has inherent bias in it does it have more or less of the good stuff, I think, is the challenge moving forward. So um, if you're going to do an interview with somebody, you know, make sure you've got two people in the interview. Make sure that you know, people are aware of some of their biases. Make sure there's water in the room. Make sure the temperature's not too hot. Make sure that the person who, you know, you're, in, you're not in hot states. So, you know, all of these things can be done to, to essentially help with those types of biases. And, um, but, yeah, I'm a firm believer there's no such thing as neutral choice architecture. But I do believe that the world is so badly designed a lot of the time, it could definitely be rebiased um, in the right way. Yeah, yeah, that, that's perfect answer, Jess. Thank you. And now still on that line. So let's talk about the future and devolution, how uh, we can actually, you know, make it, you know, make sure that we are using the tools that we have today and using the tools we're developing and innovating to a more inclusive and, and sustainable future. How do you see the evolution of behavior studies within those advancements of, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and even quantum computing? 
How do you see this merge? And do you see that in a more optimistic way that, you know, we are actually going to be able to build something that is going to be fair for people? Or we, we do have the dystopians and the utopians here when we interview, right? The ones that think that, oh, you know, the way it is today, we're going to be in a real bad place soon. What's your thought? So I keep referencing this book, and I don't, don't think a lot of people have kind of stumbled across. I mean, I, I did mention it in one podcast, and somebody said, wow, it's a really interesting read. Um, so there's a book called um, The Biological Mind, and it's a brilliant book written by a neuroscientist, Alan, I can't remember Alan's second name, but it's called The Biological Mind. He is a neuroscientist, and he's done a lot of fMRI-type work. So, so one, of, one of the interesting sort of the constant, the book, the book's kind of central premise is that, you know, the brain is a biological organ, not a computer, and it is part of the body. The mind and body is, are not two distinct things, that they're, they're, they're one. And, you know, I think a lot of philosophers and um, previous kind of behavioralists, I guess, have tried to, dis, to, to pull the two apart or put them together depending on what, what decade. So bizarrely, you know, I'm not a psychologist to my background, like, very young undergraduate type background was biochemistry. So I was fascinated about how micro sort of interactions in the body can essentially allow us to move and live and do all amounts of amazing things and replicate those types of things. So, so yeah, so the book talks about like the brain, you know, whilst electrical isn't a computer. So my, my, not my pessimism, but my ask, I think, and it is starting to happen is that um, there's so much money being put into AI, machine learning, predictive analytics, predominantly from kind of like engineering coding backgrounds, with a view to, even in the language, artificial intelligence, to essentially understand kind of how the brain works and makes decisions. And it's crazy, right? Because the brain is not a computer. So it's a biological organ. So it's influenced by, you know, quite a lot of other things other than the connections that, that are made by neural networks, you know. So, for example, you know, um, Alan talks about glial cells, different types of cells than maybe more more neurons. Talks about neurotransmitters, so there might be kind of some hormones that are also kind of swimming along in the brain, you know, to modulate some of those those pathways. So, my sort of ask, and, and you mentioned it before, Maria, is to say that um, it's as if it's as if the the technologists think of the brain as a computer with neural networks that essentially we can code in. And I, I just don't think that's the whole story. I think the contextual aspect of, of how, you know, what else is happening um, at the same time that those neural sort of networks and pathways are being fired is really, really important. So what I'm beginning to see is um, kind of a few pockets of people that understand behavior, understand more than biochemistry, but also understand quantum computing. Um, or AI machine learning. So um, I was chatting to, to a guy. So there's a guy called um, Keith Deer. He works at Fujitsu. And I think he's most probably at the forefront of this world, where he's got a real deep understanding, I think, of the psychological mechanisms for how we live our lives and, and, and go about our daily lives, um, and also as well the technology. And then um, Dan Raj, uh, who used to work for Cowrie, um, is doing a PhD, I think he's in Frankfurt or Munich, on exactly the same thing. So my kind of optimistic future is to say, I think the world is going to be better if you've got behavioral scientists, behavioral data scientists working alongside AI, predictive analytics, machine learning, and quantum. 
I don't really understand quantum computing, but I'm hoping Keith will talk more about that in our summer school in the summer. I'll be able to glean some knowledge. But yeah, I think I think that would be my key kind of provocation would be technologists aren't going to be able to understand how the brain works because the brain isn't a computer. It's a biological organ. Please work with some behavioral scientists, psychologists, biochemists. Definitely, definitely. And you know, we must have a multidisciplinary group involved in that, right? Behavior scientists and all other sort of areas that, that has to compose all the complexities of how we work, right? And, you know, this leads me actually to my last question for you. You know, like most things in life, we don't have this recipe that would apply to everyone, which makes diversity and different backgrounds and different expertises an important topic anywhere we go. With behavior science, likewise, as human behavior changes, depending on culture, values, and everything else, localization where you are. So you have this great collaborative project, the Diversify Network, right? So could we end our conversation by, you know, having you just tell us about it? Were you able, together with this really amazing group, to really unleash a true collaborative environment for behavior science studies and applications? Yeah, so again, I think maybe it's a bit ahead of its time because I love doing this work and it is my livelihood. So, you know, I have a dual motivation, which is really, really enjoyable. But if it doesn't work, then then I can't pay my mortgage. And it's, that's quite important to have three children, um, a wife and, and a dog, not in order. My wife obviously comes first. Behavioral science, I think, kind of was born out of some amazing work in America, amazing professors but with a certain view of the world. And, and at no point did they say, this is how the whole world works, and this is the kind of the, the fundamental laws. I don't think they ever said that, but there was kind of an inference that, you know, a lot of the, the ways in which we think and behave are kind of hardwired and systematic and predictable. And, and it turns out they're not. And, and I don't think anybody in the forefathers of behavioral science have ever said that, you know, this is replicable and systematic in every culture in the world. But, but not enough work was done elsewhere So I think, yeah, the, the global north and global south, the weird and non-weird. So I'm sure you listeners have heard of the weird nature of psychology, which is like Western educated, industrial, rich and democratic. You know, it tends to be kind of that, that kind of view of the world. And, and it just doesn't play out, you know, in Manila or Nairobi or Santiago. You know, these are, these are quite different places. So, yeah, so during the pandemic, it's like, you know, there were some good things that came out of the pandemic. So the world became, I think, incredibly digitally networked. Um, and a lot of people I've really admired around the world, we started to make connections. And then essentially, we started to connect through kind of more digital events and, um, and thought, actually, you know, if we are going to deliver behavioral science at scale, to think that one company or one individual can have a real grasp of that worldwide, it, it, it's crazy. Um, so we formed kind of an alliance, a network of 18 sort of like-minded founders and owners of their, their different businesses to cooperate and work together on global challenges, predominantly in the business world. And it's really working. So only this week, we've done some work on how um, for a big talent management sort of HR firm, Adeco, one of their brands, LHH, has recently launched um, some behavioral science kind of research around how prepared people are to go back to work. So, so essentially prepared for that next step. Not necessarily going back to the office, but prepared for that next step. And that was a collaboration with America, UK and France, and is going to go global. 
and, and that wouldn't have been able to happen like three years ago, like to coordinate very quickly like-minded behavioral scientists across the world. So I am incredibly privileged to be able to, you know, work with and on some of the, not the most sort of prolific and amazing behavioral scientists around, around the world in the applied space. It's really, really, it's great. You know, when a client says to me, you know, we'd like to do some work um, in North America, South America, UK and India, you know, and I go, yeah, that, that really isn't a problem, actually. It's just an amazing thing to be asked and we'd love to do it. So, so yeah, so I think we're a little bit early. We've done about four pieces of work so far as a group and it's not been without its bumps, you know, the, the, the most obvious one is time zones, you know, it's often late in the night or early in the morning for some. I'm incredibly proud and privileged to be part of Diversify and I think it's the people that make it and it's the bonds that you form and um, we've never met but um, I've got something planned which um, hopefully we can get together hopefully sometime this year. That's wonderful, that's wonderful. Thank you, Jess. And you know, we strongly believe, you mentioned that maybe it's still too early, we strongly believe that's the future of work, you know, to have this uh, network, collaborative way of working, you know, just it's the collective genius working together, right? So this is amazing. And I'm really cheering for that. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, such a rich interview. Thank you, Jazz. You're always welcome back on Future Hacker if you have anything new. And we'd love to get your referrals as well that you mentioned. And, you know, anyone in Diversify will always be welcome here at Future Hacker. So it was such a pleasure, uh, Jazz. If you'd like to have share any final thoughts with the listeners, the words is yours. Thank you. You know, all I, all I would say is to say that I'm optimistic about the future, but humans have got to live in this future as well as technology. So please, 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 you know, when we're thinking about how we design the world, let's get somebody that's got some good understanding of why we do the things we do and lead, that lead to good outcomes. You know, we want to make the world better. So let's, let's strive for those outcomes. Perfect. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.